welcome to our last St. Anselm lecture. And um, tonight's going to be a little bit different format. I'm um, going to be teaching, and um, Dr. Mancha took the three heavy-duty, heavy-lifting philosophy things. I left um, last week's on the board purposefully so that we can bridge into today from that for those that might not have been here last week. Today's um, lecture is kind of a misnomer. It will be part lecture, but it'll also be, you know, discussion, uh, just as we've been doing with Dr. Mancha. Perhaps a little bit more involvement with the text tonight, which don't worry if you didn't read, that's okay. I'm going to guide you to different parts of the text to make points and to draw out some conversation parts. So, um, does anybody need a copy of this? The Prayers and Meditations, which, which is not the blue book. This is a different thing. Yes, that's that. Yeah. Anybody else? You guys all have one? Lewis, you got one? All right. Yep, that's that. I think you've got a copy of it there. Um, no. All right, you better take the pack then. There we go. Rachel, do you want one? Okay. All right, actually, let me put this down here if anyone new comes in. Make sure they get one. quiz, prayer book quiz, we'll start off with, who can tell me where the prayer of St. Anselm is in the Book of Common Prayer? It is in the Collects. It is, it, is, it is more than that. It's actually in here twice. And I was surprised by it. I'd never noticed it before, because I'd never studied St. Anselm much before. It's in the Ash Wednesday service which is really interesting. At the end of the Ash Wednesday service, on page 551, if you have your prayer book, this is the last prayer that we say at the beginning of Lent. O Lord our God, grant us grace to desire you with our whole heart, that desiring you we may seek you, and that seeking you we may find you, and that finding you we may love you, and that loving you we may hate those sins from which you have delivered us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Now, um, last week, Dr. Mancha finished by talking about um, God being truth. We talked about divine justice. Um, and we talked about evil being nothing, but having real implications, right? And so, if you missed last week, uh, we were talking about how God becomes incarnate in the Son, in Jesus Christ, as the Word, 
right? And the word, of course, actually creates according to the creed, but then recreates. We talked about truth of essences, and then we did a little detour talking about what happened with the angels. So today, we're going to do something different. We're going to look at this uh, theology, but we're going to look at it um, in a way that... Um, looks at the desires of the heart as well as the desires of the mind, right, or the soul. So, you know, of course, Scripture talks about the spiritual part of man in different ways. It uses words like soul, suke, and like heart. It also uh, uses words like spirit, right, and so we're talking about those things tonight. And we're talking about how for St. Anselm, as that prayer we just prayed um, says, he is looking at the intellect being connected to the heart. Now, one of the things that is really important as we read St. Anselm is to recognize um, that the world that we live in has greatly shaped us, right? And so most of us are children, so to speak, of the modern and going into the postmodern world, right? And so there's certain things that we come to the table with, right? This is part of, you know, every Sunday when I preach, I have to consider this, right? That there's certain things that, that you come to the table with as understandings, and they aren't necessarily in alignment with what ancient and medieval Christians think, right? One of those things that we've harped on, <laughs> if I can put it that way, for this last several weeks, is that for, for Anselm, the um, soul has these powers, right? What, what are some of the powers that the soul has that we've talked about? Faith. Yeah, faith. Faith is a power of the soul. Right. Now, just by way of contrast, how do we usually think about faith as modernists or postmodernists? Right? I mean, that's, those are general categories. But, but how do people generally talk about faith? Do they think of it as a power? Let's, let's define that first. So when we talk about it as a power, what do we mean? What did we say we, mean, we meant? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a power to grasp something, a power to perceive something, right? Um, and what's another way that we perceive things? What's another way that we get truth, get at truth? Right, this is the one that most people think of. The senses, okay, beyond the senses. So the senses bring in the data, Right? But, but, but without, yeah, so without, without the intellect or the mind, it's just data, right? Think of, think of a computer. I, I watched a, a Star Trek episode last night. Some of you might remember it from the original series. It's where they put the M5 computer on the Enterprise, right? And, and there's this big discussion about, it's the supercomputer, right? And this is back in the 60s, but it's supposed to control the starship. 
that's a really good episode because it digs into this. It talks about how computers generally just deal with data. They don't technically make judgments because they have no will, right? And so when we talk about powers of the soul, I've kind of given one away, we talk about powers of perception. So um, faith is one. Reason is typically called the other, right? What we're talking about when we talk about intellect. And then there's this power that evaluates things and makes decisions, and that's the power of the will, right? And so that's been central to our discussions the last few lectures, right? How those things all interact. So if you see faith as, a, as something that the soul has, right, to gain truth, right, to get at truth, what's the implication? Does it go contrary to reason? No, not if they both are seeking the same thing. It's a different avenue to truth, right? Now, how is that different from how most people think today? Yeah, people think of faith today as much more of an emotion. And so that, we're going to talk about that tonight. Because if you look at St. Anselm's prayers and meditations, you'll see that that's not what he thinks faith is. Although faith is not devoid of emotion, and neither is reason devoid of emotion. Right? But, but they're all packed in together. Okay? So that's kind of the preamble of what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, part of the way that we break out of our thinking and the cultural thinking, that the group think that, that we all have, is to read old books. And C.S. Lewis has this great quote in a uh, foreword that he wrote. I think it's, it's to um, Athanasius' On the Incarnation, I think, uh, where he says that you should at least read one old book for every three modern books that you read. He prefers you to have a 50-50 but, but he says if that's too much, at least read one for every three that you read. Why is he saying that? So that we can break out of the thought patterns that we're in from living in the 21st century, in his case, the 20th century, um, in our case, North America. So, St. Anselm, as I said in my first lecture, does not have this firm line between faith and reason that moderns do. But rather, they are allies. They are capacities, they're faculties of the soul that seek after the same thing. Being truth. And there's a corollary to this, and that is that they don't just seek after truth, but they seek after what is real, what is good, what is beautiful. And for St. Anselm, these things are all connected in some way. Uh, the the uh, medievals 
people that, that come after St. Anselm, uh, because he's the father of scholasticism, right? They're going to develop this idea a whole lot more. But they're going to say that if you push into any one of these things, you're eventually going to get to the other. Right? So if you push enough into what is true, you're going to get to goodness. You're certainly going to get into reality, and eventually you'll get into beauty. So that these things are all connected and can be, and can be perceived and evaluated with the powers of the soul. So the first thing we're going to look at is form and substance. Form and substance. Now, when I say form and substance, what does that mean? Well, it's this idea that what is the, at the essence of things, what we've been talking about, is not unrelated to how it, how it looks, how it feels, right? What we perceive about it naturally, right? So when Anselm talks about form and substance, uh, he's, first of all, riffing off of Aristotle, right? And Plato with that. But he's interesting in tonight's reading in that if you did tonight's reading, it looked very different from the readings that have been assigned the last three weeks, didn't it? Did anybody, was anybody able to read at least a portion of it? Anybody? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> Just take a look at it right now. Look at, look at the first page, the first part of the prayer before receiving the body and blood of Christ. Sorry, does everyone have, do you need a copy of this? I think there's a fellow in the back that doesn't. Can I give you a copy? Ola, do you have a copy too? I should have put these at the back. That would have made more sense. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> there you go. So just reading that, that first portion, what do you notice? How is this different than, say, De Veritate or, you know, On the Fall of the Devil? Not a trick question. Okay. It's in first person. Yeah? So it's a little bit different than the dialogues in that, right? The dialogues have the teacher and the student, right? Of course, Anselm's the teacher, right? What? It's a prayer. Okay, say more about that. Yeah, it's a prayer. How, how's a prayer different than like a, a dialogue or a treatise? Okay, it, it, it could be a, it's addressed to God. There's also a prayer to St. Mary Magdalene in here, right? We can talk about what that means. Maybe it is worth pausing and talking about what that means because I know that freaks some people out, right? Why are we praying to saints? When you look at, when you look at the ancient and the medieval church, uh, part of the problem with talking about praying to saints is, is an English problem, okay? Um, when we say pray, we have defined that word as something that is worshipful only. But that's not actually the original use of the word. What's the original use of the word pray? To ask. To speak to, right? Pray tell. Where did you come from tonight? 
right? In old English, right? We don't use word, that word like that anymore. But when we talk, when, when we see the ancients and medievals praying to the saints, if you read, if you read through that um, St. Mary Magdalene prayer, you noticed that what is it doing? Is it asking St. Mary Magdalene to help me? Is it like, is it like the people that bury St. Anthony's statues in their yard superstitiously thinking that their house will sell? You ever heard of that? No, it's not that. What is it? It's intercession. Yeah, it's intercession. It's, it's St. Anselm identifying with Mary Magdalene as a sinner, interestingly, first and foremost, and saying, hey, you dealt with this. Jesus forgave you. He's forgiven me too. Would you ask him on my behalf to grant some grace? Now, we can talk about the theology of that. People will disagree with that, right? But it's not the straw man that people think of when they think of praying to the saints. It's not like the saints are demigods up there, right? That, that, that's, not, that's not historic Christianity. Now, now, there are some Roman Catholics that treat it that way, and they're wrong, right? But if you press them on that, if you press uh, even a, a good Roman Catholic theologian on that, he'd say, no, that's wrong. That's, that's not what, what we're doing here, right? So just a quick detour to, to what's going on there. When he's praying to, uh, to quote-unquote, Mary Magdalene, it's better to think of it as praying through Mary Magdalene. He's talking to her just as one might talk to a neighbor or a fellow Christian and say, hey, I identify with you because you've struggled with this sin. Can we pray about this together? Right? And, like, no one thinks that if, if I go to, to Elena and say that, 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 that I'm worshiping Elena, right? So, all right. Um, end of detour. So, yeah, prayers are different than treatises or um, dialogues. What else? Yes, thank you. It's in verse as opposed to prose. What's that mean? It's poetry. It's poetry. Form is found in poetry. It's not just in poetry, but it certainly is found in poetry, right? Notice the indentations. Notice the actual structures in it. There's repetitive lines tying things together. Um, so out of... Anselm's deep devotion and love to the Lord Jesus comes this mix, this form of substance that's usually not seen in poets and beauty that's usually not seen in philosophers and theologians. It's actually really interesting because Anselm is precise theologically with his wording in these prayers. As precise as he would be in a treatise on theology or philosophy. Right? If you've seen some of the previous lectures, you know he's precise in his wording, right? He doesn't say things flippantly, or like, he doesn't use things loosely, right? When he says word, he means something very specific. When he says nature, he means something specific. When he says 
spontaneously, he means something very specific. And, and, and he does the same thing in his prayers, but notice that's combined with a beauty, a form. And this is something that's really distinctive about Anselm, because there's lots of people that write prayers in the Middle Ages. But St. Anselm is the only one, uh, at least that survived to us, that combines a succinct theology with a beautiful form. Right? So historian R.W. Southern, who uh, wrote kind of the, the, the latest contemporary uh, biography on him, says this. He says, Other contemporary writers used rhymed prose simply as a literary artifice which contributes to the sound but not to the sense. But Anselm's prose, his rhymes reinforce his argument. His rhymes reinforce his argument. Now, unfortunately, most of us don't read Latin. Uh, I had some Latin in seminary in high school, but I don't remember it very well. So we can't see the full extent of this, right? Um, but if you look at it, even if you don't understand it, you can see the same sounds, the same patterns in the Latin. We can, however, get a sense of this in the structure. So look at page 102. The prayer to the Holy Cross. The prayer to the Holy Cross. Page 102. Look specifically at line 25 there. Actually, go back to the beginning of the section. What word starts this? Let's look at the form here. We do not acknowledge you because of the cruelty that goodness and foolish men prepared you to effect upon the most gentle Lord, but because of the wisdom and goodness of him, who of his own free will took you up. For they could not have done anything unless his wisdom had permitted it. And he could not suffer except that his mercy willed it. Now, first of all, let's look at the substance. What's being said there? about the cross. This is addressed to the cross, remember. So where's, where's the theology? Where's the philosophy? What's, what's the core of what's being said here? Yeah, Christ subjected himself to humility, even death upon the cross. It's quoting Philippians chapter 2. Not quoting, but it's referencing it, right? What else? Of his own free will... He did it of his wisdom, of his goodness, all very specific things. His will and his wisdom permitted it, right? Evil's not causing something here, right? God is permitting it to happen. And he could not suffer except that, he, that in his mercy he willed it, that God willed to be nailed to the cross. Do you see there's the theology, there's the philosophy. Now, take yourself back. And look at the form. It starts off with we. And look how it changes in the very next line. They chose you that they might carry out their evil deeds. He chose you that he might fulfill the work of his goodness. Let's just stop right there. Analyze those two lines in form. What's parallel? 
What, what, what can you compare and what can you contrast? You didn't know you were going to be doing some English literature stuff tonight, did you? First of all, what contrasts? Who's doing what? Yeah, they chose you. The foolish men that are crucifying him. Yeah. He chose you also. Who's he? Jesus. Right? So you see the, diff- the contrast between they and he? And it's going to go back and forth. It's going to go back and forth for the next few lines. Look at, look at that. They that by you, they might hand over the righteousness to, to death. He that through you, he might save sinners from death. They that they might kill life. He that he might destroy death. They that they might condemn the Savior. He that he might... Save the condemned. Notice, I'm emphasizing just the first word, but look at the rest of the sentences. What's Anselm doing in form here? There's probably some particular name for this. I haven't taken English literature in a long time, so I'm not looking for that. But what's Anselm doing here? Yeah, there's this overall theme. What they intended for evil, God has turned into good. Right? And he's going back and forth. And so he's interacting with the theology in this beautiful formulaic way, right? They are trying to bring about death. He's trying to bring about life. They're trying to bring about evil. He's bringing about good. They want to destroy mankind. He wants to save mankind. They want to condemn. He wants them to be brought alive. Do you see what he's doing here? Does this make sense? Not not too esoteric? (laughs) Yes. That's interesting, yeah. Hmm. I hadn't noticed that, David. Yeah. I don't know. I actually, I don't, I don't know even the, the. See, this is getting out of my, my area. I don't know the history even of sonnets and, and this type of form. Yeah. That's interesting. It seems like it's part of the form. Yeah. But I'm just trying to highlight this for you, that this is different, right? Anselm's doing something different. He's got accurate substance here, accurate theology, but he's also giving it to you in a different form. There's this unity of being between form and substance, between beauty and truth. Do you see? Let's go on to the next part then. For Anselm, there's also not a dichotomy between learning or the intellect and holiness, as we've said, as we said earlier, between faith or reason. Uh, 
there's something in modern Christianity that is very troubling to many people, but to me, and that's this idea that somehow intellect and learning is not authentic faith, right? So somehow, somehow there's this idea that, that when we apply our minds, we're being less authentic or being less godly, right? You, you, you've probably seen it in different forms. The idea that faith and reason are opposites, right? That, that's been a, something that, that's gone on, science versus religion, right? That's been going on since the 19th century, even earlier. The idea that being intellectually simple is somehow more holy, right? The idea that logical argument and doctrine are adverse to being Christ-like. We could go on and on giving examples of these things. Os Guinness noticed this too, and wrote a great book that I recommend if you want to dig into this. It's called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. And it talks about why the evangelical mind is lazy. And, but it's not limited to evangelicals because we see this across the board. The idea that lazy thinking is okay for the Christian as long as his or her heart's in the right place. That's unhinging what? goodness and truth. It's unhinging beauty and reality. We can talk about the implications of those things too. But this unhinging is not good for Christians and it's not what ancient Christians thought and it's not what medieval Christians thought. It's some kind of modern or postmodern deconstructive idea that's invaded Christian thinking. It'd be something very foreign to St. Anselm. The idea that one could be intellectually lazy and a person of faith wouldn't make any sense to him. Conversely, the idea that someone could be a super intellectual and not submit themselves to the God of all reality, truth, goodness, and beauty would be something unfathomable to him. When we talk about the idea of faith seeking understanding, there's a reason that people scratch their heads and puzzle, and puzzle over that, right? When we say that that's one of Anselm's mottos, faith-seeking understanding. But notice that for Anselm and for medieval and ancient Christians, there's this unity. And they're getting this out of lots of places in the Bible, but particularly in Philippians chapter 4, where we read St. Paul write, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence or virtue, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What's St. Paul saying? That an intellectually lazy person, a person that's not thinking and chewing on the Word of God and all of these other things that are good and pure and noble, is not going to have peace. Whoa. I mean... 
what St. Paul's actually saying is the opposite. He's saying, if you do this as a Christian, you will have peace, right? The line right before this, by the way, is the, is the, uh, the, the blessing, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds, and the knowledge and love of God. Notice, what does St. Paul join together? Knowledge and love of God. The two things are united, right? So this, there's this idea that we can separate them out and, you know, kind of compartmentalize knowledge on one side and love of God on the other side is anathema to Anselm's thinking. And frankly, it should be anathema to yours, if I can get in the pulpit for a moment. <laughs> but we struggle with this. We struggle with this because it's not the world around us. Now, we're going to bridge over to something else in the readings tonight called the Meditations on Human Redemption. So turn with me to page 230 in your packet there. This is a really interesting work because it's not a treatise. It's not a, it's not a, a dialogue, rather, but a meditation. But it shares some connection to Anselm's other writings as dialogues or as um, um, more treatise-like things, right? This is not a prayer. So notice, it's not in verse, right? On page 230, this is the Meditation on Human Redemption. Meditation on Human Redemption. Look how he starts it. Christian soul, brought to life again out of the heaviness of death, redeemed and set free from wretched servitude by the blood of God. Full stop. That's a powerful theological statement, right? Yes, this is like we're, going, we're in Passion Tide now. We're going into Holy Week. Like This is part of what it's all about, right? This is where the rubber meets the road. Christian soul brought to life again out of the heaviness of death, redeemed and set free from the wretched servitude by the blood of God. Rouse yourself and remember that you are risen. Realize that you've been redeemed and set free. Consider again the strength of your salvation and where it is found. Meditate upon it. Delight in the contemplation of it. Shake off your lethargy and set your mind to thinking over these things. Taste the goodness of your Redeemer. Be on fire with love for your Savior. Chew the honeycomb of His words. Suck their flavor, which is sweeter than sap. Swallow their, wholeness, their wholesome sweetness. Chew by thinking. Suck by understanding. Swallow by loving and rejoicing. Be glad to chew. Be thankful to suck. Rejoice to swallow. What then is the strength and power of your salvation and where is it found? Christ has brought you back to life. He is the good Samaritan that has healed you. He is the good friend who has redeemed you and set you free by laying down his life for you. Christ did all this. So the strength of your salvation is the strength of Christ. Now we could stop right there. I mean, notice what he's fitting into this. Right? The rich theology that's packed in here. What are just some things that you see? Yeah. 
Okay, consuming the word as read. What else? As bread. 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 Yes. Yeah. The bread of life. Yeah, we're going to get to that. We're going to come back to that. Yeah. What else? Maybe, maybe you're just not seeing it. But look, look at the different doctrines here. Brought again to life. What is that? Resurrection. Resurrection. The heaviness of death. What is that? Set free from wretched service, servitude. What is that? Who are you enslaved to? Sin and death. And, and the author you know, of sin and death, right? Satan, the devil. Yeah. Consider your strength, the strength of your salvation. Where is it found? Where does he say it's found? Is it in your really good will? Is it in your personal strength and fortitude? Right. Christ did it all. Christ did it all. Right? So the strength of your salvation is the strength of Christ. The very last line. Where is the strength of Christ? Well, he goes on and he talks about Christ being the sacrifice, right? What's he doing here? He's rousing the soul to meditate on these things. You see, as Christians, too often, what do we do? We sit here and we yawn and we say, yeah, the resurrection. Yeah, the passion. Okay. The incarnation. Yeah, that was nice. God loves me. You know, yeah, I guess he freed me from sin, but I'm not that bad of a person. What's Anselm doing? He's saying, do you understand, O soul, what God has done for you and how he has done it? Unless you chew on this and meditate on this, you don't actually appreciate it and you can't be rightfully grateful for it. Not that that's what gives you salvation, but notice, what is this? A linkage of knowledge and love. Remember that silly old 60s song? To know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. Right? I mean, it's a silly pop song, right? And no, I, I just remember it because it was in the oldies station I listened to as a kid. But, but there's, a, there's a lot of garbage in pop songs, but that's actually good, right? To know can be to love, or at least knowing helps us love. And what St. Anselm is saying is that loving helps us know as well. Faith seeking understanding. Do you see what's going on here? Do you see what he's saying? Look, that's just the first part of this meditation. I, I would suggest to you to read the rest of it, especially during this next week, Holy Week, right? But Anselm's also doing something else in his form. And Elena caught it. 
he's appealing to a scripture when he talks about chewing on the honeycomb. Now this is a little bit more on the edge, I think. But if, if, if you read the Psalms regularly, this may have jumped out to you. It's Psalm 19. And as a monastic, St. Anselm is reading the Psalms, probably through all of them at least once a month, probably more than that, right? Like it's the daily office, the, our daily hours on steroids. That's what the mon- monastics do, right? So Psalm 19 starts out, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. One day speaks to another, and one night gives knowledge to another. And then if you jump down in Psalm 19 to um, verse number 10, we read this. Actually, let me start with 9 so it makes sense. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than the honeycomb, than the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant taught, and in keeping them there is great reward. So what's Anselm thinking about? I think we can presume, coming out of the Psalter here, What's he thinking about? The honeycomb is the word of God, right? The fear of the Lord endures forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Who is the one who is righteous altogether? Jesus Christ, the living word. And so what he's talking about here is chewing and thinking and remembering and realizing and sucking and swallowing on the word of God. And he's thinking about this both in the written word and in the sacramental word, right? St. Anselm is talking about savoring God's worth both written and sacramentally. When we talk about the living word, who are we talking about? Let me just kind of back up. Who are we talking about? The living word. That's one of his titles, right? Jesus is one of his titles is the living word, right? But Jesus as we say in the creed, has ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He will come, judge the living and the dead in his kingdom. Right? You all know that. Now, the living word is revealed himself to humanity. How? Well, when he became incarnate and dwelt among us. Right? If you want to know God, look at Jesus. It's basically Christmas. (laughs) If you want to know the will of God, look at Jesus. All right, so the living word reveals himself. How does he feed the church now that he's up there sitting at the right hand of the Father? He intercedes for us. How does he feed us? Through word and sacrament, right? Through the written word, the word of God, Holy Scripture, and through holy sacrament, right? The bread, the wine. Anselm is assuming these things, right? Because remember, he's living around 1100 AD, right? And so Anselm is assuming that we are chewing on God. And what he's trying to do is get us to get himself, really, with the meditation, is to more fully rejoice in how God's feeding us.
So look at line 45, particularly in the meditation. It's on the very next page from where we were. He talks about God revealing himself in the living word. You did not assume human nature to conceal what was known of yourself. Sorry, this is 40, line 43. You did not assume human nature to conceal what is known of yourself, but to reveal what was not known. Do you see that? Now, I know I'm getting you to flip a little bit, but look back at the first prayer on page 100. And look at the top of page 100 on the right-hand side. I guess it's probably page 101, but it's cut off. What's Anselm's prayer? Make me, O Lord, so to do what? Perceive with lips and heart and know by faith and by love. Perceive with lips and heart and know by faith and by love, that by virtue of this sacrament I may deserve to be planted in the likeness of your death and resurrection by mortifying the old man and by renewal of the life of righteousness. May I be worthy to be incorporated in your body, which is the church, so that I may be your member and you may be my head, that I may remain in you and you in me. Are you noticing any similarities between this and some of the prayers that we say in our liturgy as a church here? You should, right? It's also similarities going back to John, right? Abiding, right? So what's Anselm saying here? He's saying that we approach the sacrament for sustenance, for justification, and for perception. Right thinking. How often do we think about that? Right? How often do we think about Holy Communion actually affecting our minds? Do you see where that, that modern postmodernism creeps in? Like we segment off my spirituality, quote-unquote, from the rest of myself. Just an example. But look what Anselm says earlier in this prayer. He says, I beg and pray you, this is on the previous page at the bottom, therefore, merciful lover of men, let not that which you have given for cleansing of sins be unto me the increase of sin, but rather for forgiveness and protection. And then he goes into talking about perception. So there's a lot going on here. I hope you're seeing there's a lot more going on that he's trying to draw our attention to in word and sacrament as we chew on as we chew on the word both in the written word and in the sacramental form. So for Anselm, we're not just thinking about God or even just seeing him, but we're knowing him. We're chewing on him or eating him. We're making him a very part of us. There's not this distinction between learning and holiness that we think of. There's a unity there. And one is necessary to the other. 
Does that make sense? Do we want to talk about this at all? I think this is, I think this is really mind-blowing when you start going down this road of, of what, what God's project for humanity is, right? God's project for humanity isn't just to save you from hell, right? It's to, like, restore you, resurrect you, put you into a place where you can more fully perceive God so that you can more love him, so that you can more enjoy him, right? And of course, you know, I won't get into preaching here, but so that we can more enjoy the new heaven and the new earth because this one's passing away. So Anselm's trying to meditate on that and say, look, look, you're all enamored with the wrong reality. He's talking to himself. You're, you're enamored with the wrong reality. Help, let me help you, O oh Christian soul, meditate on the true reality of all that is real, good, and beautiful. Some of which is found here, but most of which is not. At least not unsullied. So, let's stop there for a minute. I'm talking a lot. I told you I wasn't going to lecture so much. I think I'm preaching. That's even worse. What are some implications here? Is there anything that strikes you about what he's trying to get us to meditate on? First of all, think about the, the very thing, meditation. What is meditation? Right? Is it just sitting in an empty room with a candle going om? Right? I think a lot of people think of meditation that way. Is it clearing your mind for the Christian? No. What's it doing? I mean, in a, in a way, it does clear your mind, but you're not trying to make your mind go vacant. What are you trying to do? What's Anselm trying to do? Renew? What else? I heard somebody else. Think about the goodness of God, yeah. Think about the love of God. Think about every aspect of the love of God. Think about every aspect of what God has done, right? Notice when we look at some of these other prayers, the one to St. Mary Magdalene, how is that different than the meditation, right? I mean, we could jump into it now, but let's, let's hold off. Um, What's he conceptually trying to do? Yeah, David. Go ahead, you can just make a cut. That's fine. I'll come back to that.
Yeah, in your light we see light. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I think I understand what you're saying. Like, like, like you're in in his light. We see light because in in a in his fuller understanding, I think, which is given to us, we more clearly see like particulars. Is that a good way to say it? Right. Yeah, that's true too. And that would have been very much a part of the monastic life, right? The monastic life work is actually part of prayer. You know, right? Work flows into prayer. Prayer flows into work, right? There's not this distinction, right? So, so there is a much more holistic, if you want to put a modern turn of phrase on it, holistic, or if you want to talk about it in a medieval way, sacramental, little s like of something bespeaking something else, uh, something influencing something else, even on something as simple as digging a hole, right? See if I can find it. <laughs> Keep talking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot. Let's see. Those those who make them are like them, and so they all so are all they who put their trust in them. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I think there's like the partial picture argument, right? That you're only looking at one piece of the puzzle, but when you see the, the full picture of the puzzle, that puts your piece in perspective, right? There's that, there's that way of thinking about it. In his light, we see light. But there's also this other way of thinking about it, right? Where, um, where we have to be released from a... It's it's almost part of the enslavement, I think, which is really interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Well, when we worship things that we're not supposed to worship, it it does hurt us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. On the other side, there's taste and see that the Lord is good, right? 
is the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's much to be said about the, the, the incarnation of God, right? I mean, there's books written on just that doctrine, which I think we skip over too as Westerners. Um, we generally don't think about that as much, but the fact that, that, it, that when God became man, it wasn't just so that he could you know, say hi. <laughs> I mean, but, but God, it, it wasn't just that he could give the, the, the new law, right, even. The God, when God became man, he became man to redeem man. He gets into this actually on that redemption of humanity, that God has to become human. He has to become man in order to be the perfect sacrifice for man. Right? If God comes down just as God, first of all, how does he die on the cross? <laughs> right? Second of all, how does that help you? It's just a God dying. Okay? But God became man. He became the perfect form of humanity and then offered himself up of his free will on the cross. Right? Do you see, why does that matter? Right? Why, why couldn't, you know, David go die on the cross for my sins? Right? I mean, we don't have David up there. <laughs> David's not perfect, yes. David's not perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, David... Notice, what's, what's the argument behind that, though? Help, help, help us out. What's the argument behind that? David's not perfect, so? <laughs> okay. Why does that matter? I'm just going to keep pushing you. <laughs> He doesn't have anything to account for, okay? David doesn't? That would make David perfect if he has nothing to account for. Jesus, okay. Jesus doesn't have anything to account for. Yeah, so David, David could go get himself crucified and say it's for me. Um, why, why would that? It's, and first of all, it's not even efficacious for David. Right, David's already dead. He's, he's already under judgment, right? So if he dies for, you know, his own sins, okay, well, I guess. Now we've got dead David. <laughs> dead David going to hell. All right, great. <laughs> right, so, so, so when God becomes man, he becomes one of us, right? And then he offers himself of his free will. Like, we, could, we could go and look at this in the meditation, right? There's a whole part of the meditation on this. But God of his own free will offers himself as the perfect man and the perfect God. Anselm says that he's more than the perfect man because he's everything outside of God perfectly. But then, of course, he's also God, right? And he offers himself on the cross once for our salvation, right? Why is his death special? Number one, he had nothing to atone for of his own, right? He had, he had nothing to offer, to account for, as Tyler said, right? He, he didn't need to die, right? He says in Scripture, I have laid down my life 
and I may take it up again, right? Yeah, he asks God in the garden, in the Gethsemane, right? Right, we've got, because Gethsemane Church, we even have that on the wall there, right? And in the stained glass here. Yeah, I mean, he's it, not like psyched about being crucified, right? <laughs> like, this is sweet. <laughs> But the effects of it are sweet. And Anselm gets into that. He, in fact, right, that's the language he uses, that the effects of it are sweet, sweet to us, right? Why? Because it's this demonst- just great demonstration of love. So again, you see a doctrine being brought together with great emotion. I mean, if you read these prayers, Anselm is not some dry philosopher arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Right. Yes, which is really interesting, right? Because Anselm is anything but childish, right? I mean, as an intellect, he towers above, I, I think I can safely say, anyone in this room, right? <laughs> but, you know, I, I, you read the stuff and you scratch your head, and you're like, I've got to read it multiple times, right? But, um, but at the same time, he's childlike in his love of God and his devotion to God. Yeah. I mean, in his, in his imagery even. Um, and I think, I think that's because of what he's doing here in his meditation. He, he, it's not like he's not thinking, notice. He's thinking very deeply in this writing because it all fits together intricately. But it's also not devoid of emotion that by any means. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I think that he, he's trying to, to get himself and, and us to, to encounter these things afresh, right? Right. I mean, those of you that, that are in this congregation heard me preach on Sunday, harden not your hearts, right? Um, harden not your hearts as we go into Passion Tide, right? This is part of not hardening your heart. This is part of keeping your heart soft, Right? Right, right, remember, and not just like rote memory, but remember, remember, remember how much this means, right? All right, let, let's look quickly on that note at um, the prayer to St. Mary Magdalene, page 201. Now, it's an interesting fact of history that part of the reason that that, that prayers to the saints emerges 
uh, before Anselm even, is because God's people want to identify with God, but he's so, sometimes he seems like so other that they can't identify him. In fact, when I was reading Anselm's uh, biographer, he talks about this. He says that, that Anselm, when he was writing prayers and meditations, and he would write these prayers for, you know, um, William, the, I think one of them is William the Conqueror's uh, daughter, right? When he would write these prayers, he could write the prayers to the saints really easily, but then he got to writing about Christ, and it got really hard because he couldn't, because because he couldn't identify with the sins, because Christ is sinless, right? Um, in fact, Anselm even believes that Mary is sinless, so he has a hard time writing the Blessed Mother too. Um, but look at this prayer to to Saint Mary Magdalene. Now, I think I should just throw this out there, that St. Mary Magdalene is, is actually... Tradition holds that she's, that she's the prostitute that anoints Christ's feet, right, with the, with the expensive ointment, you recall this passage. Um, that comes actually out of a sermon that, that I, can't, I think it's Pope Gregory preaches. <laughs> Um, it's possible. It's not necessarily biblical, but it's it's one of those big te- it's one of those little T traditions that has just like really become ensconced in the church. So when we talk about Mary Magdalene, we're not just thinking about Mary Magdalene, who Scripture does tell us had like seven demons cleansed from her. I mean that that's fact, like according to Scripture. But we're also talking about Mary Magdalene. Um, that plus this idea that she's redeemed from the the most um, pitiful of places, right? Um, so, so look at look at what Saint Anselm does in this prayer, right? Saint Mary Magdalene, you came with springing tears to the spring of mercy, Christ. First of all, what a beautiful turn of phrase that is. You came with springing tears to the spring of mercy, Christ. From him, your burning thirst was abundantly refreshed. Through him, your sins were forgiven. By him, your bitter sorrow was consoled. My dearest lady, well you know your own life, by your own life, how a sinful soul can be reconciled with its creator. What counsel a soul in misery needs, and what medicine will restore the sick to health. It's enough for us to understand, dear friend of God, to whom were many sins forgiven because she loved much. It's a quote of Luke 7.47. Most blessed lady, I am the most evil and sinful of men. Do not recall your sins as a reproach, but call upon the boundless mercy by which they were blotted out. This is my reassurance, so that I do not despair. This is my longing, so that I shall not perish. I say this of myself, miserably cast down into the depths of vice, bowed down with the weight of crimes, thrust down by my own hand into a dark prison of sins, wrapped round with the shadows of darkness. So we stop there. What's he doing here? There's theology in here, notice. But what else is he doing? 
So I'm gonna have the time. I, I forgot my watch. Okay, good. Why why is he talking to Mary Magdalene? Right, so he's identifying with her as a sinner, right? He's saying, let, let not this, don't, don't, don't be reproached by this, right? Don't, don't be annoyed by the fact that I'm bringing up your sins, essentially, right? But why? Why, why, is he bringing, why does he say he's bringing up these sins? Yeah, that she was forgiven, right? That she was forgiven. Yeah. And she's closer to Christ. She she was closer to Christ because she like bodily sat at his feet. Right? Like that's that's kind of cool. What else does he say? I think this is a really interesting point. The the very last line. Why does he bring this up? Why why is he why is he talking to her? About his sin? Actually, it's not the very last line. It's like the last five lines. I say this of myself, miserably cast down. Yeah, yeah he's at kind of a low point. I mean, he says this, right? He, he says, this is my reassurance so that I do, I do not fall into despair. Yeah. He's like, hey, you probably understand this, Mary. Like, you probably understand this because, you know, that whole prostitute thing or that whole demon-possessed thing. Like, you understand what despair is. You understand how hopeless this seems to me. He's identifying with her. But notice, he's doing more than that. He's... He's using his connection with her in prayer to connect to whom? Jesus, right? Don't miss this. Again, it's, it's the air that we breathe, it's the water that we swim in, right? We are so individualistic in our faith. We think of me, myself, and God. Sometimes my Bible. <laughs> I like to go to church once in a while, right? What's he doing? He's enacting his connection here with the communion of saints that we, we talk about in the creed, right? I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. What's he doing here? He's casting himself as part of the communion of saints with this great sinner who is now by Christ and his mercy part of the communion of saints. Do you see how that might guard one against despair? Yeah. Yeah. He's asking her, in a sense, he's, he's using, I mean, and we see this, right, with living people all the time, right? 
Uh, oftentimes, it's people that have gone through the same struggles that band together. Why, why do you think AA works? Or, you know, any anonymous group, right? Why do you think that those, w w there's a, a really important component to those groups, right? Where these people know where you've been. These people have fought the fight that you're fighting, <laughs> right? And, yeah, you can always go to Jesus and talk to him about it, and, and, and he's going to receive you, of course. But does that mean that you wouldn't go to your, you know, your Christian friend and say, man, I'm really struggling with this. Can you pray with me about this thing that I'm struggling with, this thing that I'm despairing over, this sin that I just, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't get over it. Right? I can't feel that forgiveness, even though it's a fact. Right? Do you see what's going on here? I'm trying to, to turn this up for you. What, this, this is an exercise that he's doing in prayer, right? But it's rooted richly in theology, right? So look where it goes next. Therefore, since you are now with the chosen because you are beloved... What's he saying? You're with the communion of saints. Why? Not because you're really good, but because you're beloved. Because Christ loved you. And are beloved because you are chosen of God. I, in my misery, pray to you in bliss. In my darkness, I ask for light. In my sins, redemption. In pure, I ask for purity. Recalling in, recall in loving kindness what you used to be. How much you needed mercy and seek for me the same loving, forgiving love, and that you received when you were wanting it. Ask urgently that I may have the love that pierces the heart, tears that are humble, desire for the homeland of heaven, impatience with this earthly exile, searing repentance, and dread torments, and dread of torments in eternity. Turn to my good and ready access that you once had and still have at the spring of mercy. Draw me to him where I may wash away my sins. Bring me to him who can slake my thirst. Pour over me those waters that will make my dry places fresh. You will not find it hard to gain all you desire from the loving and so kind a Lord who is alive and reigns and is your friend. Who's, who's he asking? Obviously, he's asking her to, to go with him to Jesus. <laughs> right? Go with me to Jesus. You know, he goes on, right? He talks about the different things that she dealt with that's, that are found in the Gospels, right? In the next section. How Jesus defended her against the proud Pharisee, how he excused you when your sister complained, how highly he praised your deeds when Judas begrudged it. And more than all this, what can I say? How can I find words to tell about the burning love with which you sought him weeping at the sepulcher? Remember, it's Mary and John, John's gospel that goes to the tomb. It's Mary who grabs on to Jesus who tries to grab onto Jesus as he's ascending into heaven.
Yeah. Yes. Right, right. This is what David's referencing here is, is, is in John, right? This is, this is as Mary does grab at Jesus, and, and he's taking that verse and he's contemplating on that. What's going on there, right? I mean, this is one of the travesties about Holy Week and Easter. It's like you've got these awesome scripture readings, right? And they're, they're smashed into two Sundays and a week in between. And it's really frustrating because there are all these really neat things that are going on, but, you know, at least as a priest or as a preacher, you don't want to focus on that because you don't want people to not see the good news of the resurrection, right? Um, but, but Anselm in this meditation does. He takes that little piece of Mary trying, Mary Magdalene trying to grab onto Christ, and he meditates on that. What, what, what is her love for him? What is his love for her? What's actually going on there? Um, yeah, again, it's, it's a meditation, not, not an excursus, right? Or an exposition. But it's a meditation, which is, which is a drawing of one's self into it. You want to say anything else about it, David? It is really cool. Yeah, because she thinks he's the gardener, remember? So there's even there's imagery in scripture that he's using there too. Do you water or do you test? And he says you're doing both, right? You're watering and putting to the test. Yeah. And then he returns, after that, he returns to himself, right? In the next section there on 204. But now, good Lord, gentle master, look upon your faithful servant and disciple, so lately redeemed by your blood, and see how she burns with anxiety, desiring you, searching all around, questioning. And what she longs for, nowhere is found. Nothing she sees can satisfy her, since you whom alone she would behold, she sees not. What then? How will my Lord leave his beloved to suffer thus, have you put off compassion? Have you now put on incorruption? Now that you have put on incorruption, did you let go of goodness when you laid hold of immortality? What's he asking there? What is this the reverse of? Right? There's, there's something deeply emotional here going on. But, but what is this the reverse of that we talked about at the beginning? He's asking... Now that you're going from corruption to incorruption, Jesus, my Lord, are you no longer able to identify with we humans? Is this somehow the reverse of the incarnation? 
Are you just going back to be the God instead of the God-man that identifies in every way with us, yet without sin? And the answer, of course, is no. No. Jesus bodily ascends to the Father. He's kept his human nature. The human nature, the nature of man, is taken into the divine, right? That's, that's what orthodoxy believes. That's what the creed tells us, right? Jesus is bodily ascended and seated at the right hand of the Father. Right? He's, he's still able to commiserate with us. He's still able to intercede for us, right? Look at the top of 205. Let it not be so, Lord. You will not despise us mortals. Now you have made yourself immortal, for you made yourself immortal in order to give immortality. Again, we don't read the Latin, but do you see it even here in the English, what he's doing with the mortality, immortality thing? Song of Songs? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's right. I, I hadn't put that together, but I don't read Song of Psalms all that often, I'll confess. <laughs> it's probably one of the lesser read books of the Bible. Yeah, but I think you're right. Huh. I had never, thank you. I had never put that together. So, you know, let's jump to the end of this. Look at what he says. But how should I, in misery and without love, dare to describe the love of God and the blessed friend of God? Such a favor of goodness will make my heart sick if it has in itself nothing of that same virtue. But in truth, you who are very truth, right, the living word, right, the logos, you know me well and can testify that I write this for love of your love. My Lord, my most dear Jesus, I want your love to burn in me as you command so that I may desire to love you alone and sacrifice to you a troubled spirit, a broken and contrite heart. What's that from? Psalm 51, right? Sacrifices that are pleasing to the Lord are a broken and contrite heart. Give me, O Lord, in this exile the bread of tears and sorrow for which I hunger more than for any choice delights. That's an interesting turn of phrase. Hear me for your love and for the dear merits of your beloved Mary and your blessed mother, the greater Mary. Redeemer, my good Lord Jesus, do not despise the prayers of one who has sinned against you, but strengthen the efforts of a weakling that loves you. Shake my heart out of its indolence. Remember we were talking earlier about the laziness of the heart and the intellect. That indolence is a fancy word for laziness, right? Shake my heart out of its indolence, Lord, and in the ardor of your love, Bring me to the everlasting sight of your glory, where with the Father and the Holy Spirit you live and reign God forever. Amen. So, I hope, in addition to seeing this unity between faith and reason, 
you're also seeing a, a wholeness of prayer and how prayer is, you know, it's something we say all the time. It's about relationship, right? But, but just exactly what that means. It, it's about this, this, this relationship with God that's more than just thinking about him, but it's hoping in him. It's, it's, it's having trust and faith in him. It's putting your whole being into him, right? And see how Anselm, who, yeah, is going to talk about in his philosophy how words signify natural, or what was it, natural words signify these, these things, right? Or how Anselm, who's going to give you the ontological argument, is this great man of prayer and love of God, right? So when we talk about faith, seeking understanding. What are, we, what are we saying? We're saying that I am having faith so that I can understand. Right? Uh, my seeking after truth is not some dry academic exercise. And that as a Christian, it's my duty to know more so that I can love more. And if I'm not doing that, I'm actually hurting myself. Just like if I'm not receiving, you know, I'm not reading scripture or receiving the sacrament, I'm actually hurting myself as a Christian. I'm cutting myself off from these things, right? All right, that's all I've got for you. What time is it? (laughs) All right, good. So I can answer questions or at least try to answer questions. I I do want to say that... um, I'm by no means an Anselm scholar, but uh, I can look at some things with you if you like. And hopefully we'll do uh, another lecture series next year and can dig into some different things because there's just so much. Oh, good. Good. Well, thank, thank you all for coming. And um, Dr. Mancha had a great time. He and I went out last week, and he said that um, it's interesting because this, the questions that you ask are different, of course, than the questions that a 23-year-old student in college would ask. And you really made him think about some things that he hadn't thought about. So, All right, well, go in peace. But if you'd like to stay and talk, that's fine, too. This is the end of the lecture series for 2022, so thank you.